Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. This is the final episode of the year 2017. I think this might be episode 49. This is the end of a full year of podcasting. I started, I think it was the third week of January. So we're coming up on a full year, but this is being the end of the year. Today is actually New Year's Eve day, December 31st, as I record this. And it's it's a good time to kind of reflect back on what all has gone on. First of all, just to uh, pat myself on the back, I think it's remarkable that I've, you know, stuck with it so far. And a lot of that is thanks to you. If honestly, if, if I put out 49 episodes and I had, you know, 123 downloads, I probably would have stopped a long time ago, but I think we're sitting at around 13,000 downloads so far. So that tells me somebody wants to hear this stuff. And perhaps that's you. Of course, if you're a new listener, you are free to listen to this episode and say, man, I, I, I don't, this is not for me. But before you do that, go back and listen to some of the previous ones. I'm sure every day somebody new is coming along and finding the podcast. And I encourage you to go back and scour through all the other episodes because there's a lot of stuff in there. Quite honestly, I have forgotten a lot of what's in there. And maybe one of these days I'll take about a two-week break and go through every episode once again and just listen to them because to remind me of what I've said so I don't repeat myself so much. So let's get on to today's topic. Today is a topic near and dear to my heart. When I was a kid, before I got into playing music, I was interested in magic. And I'm still interested in magic. You know, the kind of magic where there's a there's a magic shop in your town and you go in and you learn how to do the thumb tip and the the cups and balls and the Chinese linking rings and you know all, you know all that cheesy magic. That's what I really, really loved. You know, all those fancy boxes and pulling a dove out of a handkerchief and you know, all those sorts of things. I really liked that. And I read a lot of books when I was a kid about the great magicians like Thurston and Houdini. And, and uh, you know, I just, I was completely wrapped up in trying to do magic. Of course, I was just a kid and I wasn't all that good at it. There were certain things I was pretty good at, but other things were very difficult. And then when I was in high school, I was still doing magic. And I still do a little bit today, but there I was in high school and I was playing in the band, playing the French horn in the band. And I've told before about how I got interested in playing bluegrass. I think I've told the story, but anyway, everything shifted over. Suddenly I didn't care about magic near as much. All of a sudden I was bitten by the bluegrass bug and all I wanted to do was play a banjo, play a fiddle, play a mandolin. And I kind of let the magic stuff go to the side. I, you know, I still was interested in it. And, you know, people that knew I, I did it at a party or something, people say, hey, Brad, do a trick, that kind of thing. And I would occasionally do it, but I was not practicing. And I let it go by the wayside. 
but as I got into to music and especially when I got into performing, you know, when I got in the first band I was in and the second band and the third band, I realized that a lot of what I learned by learning to do magic and also learning to perform magic was exactly the same as for music. So in this episode, I want to talk about some of the similarities and a few differences between the art of performing, learning to do magic and perform magic and learning to play music and perform music. And they're very similar, um, especially when you get to the performance side of it. There's, you know, if I had a gig tonight playing in a bluegrass band, there's not a lot of physical difference between what I would do to get ready for that compared to what I would do if I had a magic show I had to give tonight. There would be getting all my gear together, making sure I had everything I needed, uh, you know, loading the car, getting all my stuff together, you know, take a shower, put on the right clothes, you know, put on my outfit, make sure I have my business cards in my pocket, you know, and then arrive, get the directions, show up at the right time. You know, you get the picture. Gigging as a magician is pretty much the same as gigging as a musician. And I think it's interesting, too, that those two words are very similar. You know, magic, music, magician, musician. They're very similar. And the first thing I would say about them is that if, you, if, if you're sitting here wondering, why is he going to talk about magic, you know, Right now, all you care about is playing a banjo like like I did back in 1977, 76. Just hear me out. Some of this may resonate with you. Might not today, might, might later. Like, think about how many times you've heard a music performance described this way. It was a magical evening. You know, that kind of thing. Or, we went to the Dan Fogelberg concert and it was spellbinding. You know, a lot of the same terminology. Because I think a lot of the same effects take place in a magic performance as in a music performance. They're a little bit different. But number one, they are both performance arts. So is juggling. So is being a clown. So is being a mime. You know, there are a lot of performance arts. I would say being a professional wrestler is a performance art. Being an actor. You know, there are lots of performance arts, but magicians and musicians are both performance artists. Admittedly, in bluegrass, it's almost always a group effort. Not on the learning side, but definitely on the performing side, where magic tends to be more of a, a solo act. You don't see many magic groups. You know, yeah, the magician may have an assistant or two or pull some assistance out of the audience, but it's a kind of a lonely solo thing. It's like being a stand-up comedian or a mime. You, you know, you never see a group of mimes. At least I've never seen a group of mimes. You do see groups of jugglers and clowns. So, you know, maybe a clown act is similar to a bluegrass band. <laughs> don't take that personally. Um but but their performance, it, it, admittedly, magic is usually solo, one performer, 
and the audience, and whereas bluegrass is usually a group. But they're similar. They're both performance arts. Number two, to learn to do magic and to learn to play music, two things which I've, I've done. I've done them both, so I can sit here and tell you that the comparison, uh, that what is required to be able to do them is very similar. They both, both of them require skills, skill levels, skills by the performer that the audience, for the majority of them, do not have. So the performer, he's up on that pedestal, literally. He can do something that the audience can't. I mean, how many, how many times, let, let's say you had a beginning violin player who was not really that good, who had a concert, would you expect that the audience would be full of great violin players? I mean, you know, masters of the violin who would come to see this kid play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star? No, it's the opposite. The audience is usually full of people who cannot do the thing that they're watching. <laughs> they wouldn't come. If they could do it, they would be on stage themselves. Same is true with music. That doesn't mean you'll, you will occasionally have people in your audience who are as capable or many times more capable than you are. That can be very nerve wracking. I've, I've been on stage many a time and up there playing my mandolin or banjo or whatever and see somebody walk in and get a, get a little nervous because, you know, in walk this guy I knew who's a really great mandolin player. Luckily, he's not really paying any attention. He's not looking at me, and so I, I don't get too nervous. But you get what I'm saying. The audience can have people as in the know or as skilled or as qualified as you, but generally speaking, most of them don't. And that's the, that's the, whole, that's the whole difference between the audience and the performer. So that's the same between magic and music. There are cases where... In music, let's say you go to a workshop and kind of a higher level workshop or maybe a, a bluegrass music camp and you go there and, you know, really there's a bunch of good banjo players there and they're being taught or led by another banjo player who's probably better than them, but there could be people in the audience who are just equally as good as they are and used to have these same kind of things in the magic business. They would have these... Uh, magic magician only by invitation only uh, seminar things at the magic shop. And, you know, the guy behind the counter, he knew who the real magicians were, the people who came in a lot and spent the most money with him. They were the real ma magicians. And he would like give you a ticket to come on Saturday, the 24th, that so-and-so is going to be there and give a, you know, a master class. And, you know, it might be 10 bucks to get in or something, but you buy, by invitation only. So they, they had this same kind of thing going on in the magic world and they probably still do. And it was a great opportunity for other wannabe professionals to, you know, be enlightened by a real professional. You know, it generally boiled down to at the end where they, you know, they had some product to sell <laughs> maybe a book or, you know, a course or something. 
and I don't fault them for that. You know, a man has to eat and you got to make a living and magic and music are pretty similar in that regard. I'll come back to that. So the first item is that they are both performance arts, magic and music. And the second item is they both require skills that the audience typically doesn't possess. The third thing is that both magic and music require a lot of study and a lot of practice in order to learn the methodology and acquire the physical skills. If you're learning to play the banjo, first you have to know where to put your fingers, then you got to practice enough so that you can do it. So that's like the elementary you know, levels of learning to be a musician to play an instrument. It's the same as learning how to shuffle cards or do a backhand palm or how to do the French drop or how to manipulate the billiard balls or and do the 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 uh, the pee under the shell or you name it, the sleight of hand. That requires skill. It also requires knowledge of the method. So that is exactly like music. If I have a brand new banjo student, I've got to give them a certain amount of knowledge, and then I've got to show them how to practice so that they can develop the skill to put that knowledge into practice, put that knowledge to use. It's the same. Now, we're not quite yet at the level of performing. So the fourth thing that is similar between magic and music is that in order to be able to perform, now that you have some knowledge and some skills, now you have to do some planning and preparation for the act of performing. You know, I have, um, if you go back through some of the episodes on, you know, forming and operating a band, you know, writing a set list. Well, that's, that's very similar to, you know, writing out a program of, the order of tricks. I, I hate to call them tricks. Maybe they're illusions or, you know, a program for your act. I'm going to, I'm going to come out and I'm, I'm going to start with the silk production and then I'm going to do the, you know, the coin through the ear. And then I'm going to go to the die box and then I'm going to go to the hand chopper. And then I'm going to turn the, uh, you know, the, ink into goldfish, and then for the grand finale, you know, you get what I'm saying. There's a program, and then you practice that. And that's a lot like rehearsing a band. Or if you're a solo performer, working on your show before you go perform. So all that planning and preparation is very similar. Then number five, to be a good magician or to be a good musician, if you're performing, you need to develop stage presence that confidence, that knowing what you're going to say before you say it so that it comes out smooth and, and you sound like you know what you're talking about. Or in terms of playing, you play as if you know what you're playing. The, also, the ability to control, and I put that in air quotes, control the audience. You could say manipulate the audience. There are a lot of musicians who are wonderful musicians in terms of technical skills, but who are seriously lacking in stage presence. You might say like a magnetic personality or the ability to 
you know, control the audience. And I don't mean control in a negative way. I don't mean I'm going to put you under my control, you know, but in a sense you are because when you walk on stage for there to be a good show, take place for a good show to happen. You need to command the attention of the audience. And there are techniques for doing that so that the audience doesn't feel like they're being, you know, controlled like robots, but you can control the audience. Uh, A good example of this is, and it happens at every bluegrass festival, you're sitting there out in the audience and they're in between the bands and in between the bands, there's not much going on. And, you know, your kid's coming up to you wanting five bucks to go get some cotton candy. And you're looking around and everybody's free to talk. And there's a lot of chaos in the audience. And one band's breaking down. Another one's coming out. And the MC's standing over trying to figure out who's coming out. And a good MC will walk up to the microphone and say, Ladies and gentlemen, if I could have your attention, please... If everyone would just give me your attention for just a moment, there is a 1983 K car burgundy out in the parking lot with its lights on. Now that was it, you know, an example of audience control without the, excuse me, if I could have everyone's attention and he's not going to proceed with the, the, the bulletin about the K cars lights being on until he has the audience's attention. The same goes for musicians. I've seen musicians come out and not have the audience's attention yet. This especially happens in bar gigs and things like that, where, you know, it's the start of the third set and the band comes up and starts playing and half the audience is not even really aware that they're playing because maybe they were playing break music in between, So being able to gain the attention of your audience is helpful. And that's just like magic. It's exactly the same thing. It's perhaps a little more detailed in magic because so much of it is visual instead of through hearing that it's very important in magic to get them looking where you want them to look. Because when you pull the rabbit out of the hat, if nobody's looking at the hat, you have failed. You know, you need them to look where the action is. And with magic, the opposite side of that is true, too. You need them to not look certain places. So this this developing stage presence and audience control, the pacing and timing of the show, you know, what order should you do things in, that is exactly the same. And I think, you know, learning how to put on a good magic show is not that different from learning how to put on a good bluegrass show. Number six, think about why a person would ever take up learning to play music or take up learning to do magic. I think they're very similar. I think the personal motivation for that nine-year-old boy who suddenly wants to learn to do card tricks And he gets a little magic set for his birthday. What is his motivation? Why does he want to do this? And why does a guy, 58 years old, suddenly want to play a banjo? It's very similar. And whether or not those two people, 
the nine-year-old kid with his magic set, and the 58-year-old guy with his banjo, whether or not the two of them ever achieve the ability to perform in public or any kind of professional recognition is very similar. But the initial reason why, why, why do this, I think is the same for magic and music. And the first of those reasons why I think people do this is that sense of personal accomplishment of going, I don't know how to do that. I wonder if I could do that. And then when they can do it, they feel better about themselves. Uh, this same thing happened to me with uh, learning to do flint napping, the chipping of arrowheads out of flint. I looked at an arrowhead and I was like, how, how, how they do that? And I thought, well, if some Indian 4,000 years ago could do this, m maybe I could do that. And of course I tried and I failed and I tried and I failed. Well, I studied some books. I read, I watched some videos. I got some VHS tapes from some masters of flint napping and I got better at it and it felt really good. I, this is amazing. That's just personal accomplishment. My, my wife wasn't all that impressed. You know, she's like, why are you always sitting out under that tree? The, the, don't you know the yard needs mowing and the there's sticks need picking up in the front yard. I was doing it initially, both magic, music, flint napping, ham radio, you name it, pick the hobby, pick the activity to gain that sense of personal accomplishment. And there's nothing wrong with that. If that's as far as you go with magic or music, that's okay. The second phase then comes in as you begin to learn to do a skill like magic or music, then I think something new comes in and that is you desire to be recognized by others. You know, you want to do the trick on the playground for your buddies. You want to show, you know, in the break room at work, you want to do this little trick for someone else. You want to, Show them that you can do this. You want to be recognized for the skills that you've acquired. And th by the way, this is an ongoing process, certainly with music. You know, when you first learn to play, you want to show somebody you can play and you want to get that pat on the back, that sincere acknowledgement that you have accomplished something, that you are valuable as a person. I think this is why people want to learn to play. And this is why I have spent so much of my life trying to help other people learn to play. Because I don't want you to fail. Because if you fail, you just have a rotten feeling. You feel like, oh man, I knew I couldn't do this and I have proved myself right again. I, I want to get people to where they can play. But you need that recognition of others. Some people need it more than others, I will admit. But think about, think about an artist who paints a picture. How many artists paint a picture and just then put it in the closet and forget about it? They just got to show it to somebody. They want somebody to say, wow, you painted that? That's pretty good. So... That is a natural state in 
magic, and music, desiring recognition of others. Now, when you've achieved a lot of recognition from others, then you begin to subdivide the recognition. I can recall times that I've, you know, come off stage after a a set and somebody would come up and say, Hey man, that man, that was some awesome mandolin playing. And I'd thank him and, you know, chat with him a minute and then go over and sit out at the record table or something and think to myself, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. That was the worst I've played in months. That guy is a real idiot when it comes to mandolin players. He, he, you know, he obviously couldn't tell that I was struggling and I was blowing it and I was hitting all these clams. So you're looking for that sincere, like it would have been better at that moment if the guy had come up and said, Hey, I've been playing mandolin for 25 years. I heard them couple little clams. Don't worry about it. Your playing was really good. Just, you know, I've been there. You know, so as you go along in magic or music, you want honest criticism and knowledgeable criticism. Because when somebody tells you you're great and they don't know what they're talking about, you know, you you don't, it doesn't mean as much to you as when somebody who really knows what they're talking about tells you the truth. And of course, there's always that painful, you know, criticism that is the truth you don't want to hear. I won't go into all that, but then there's this other third purpose. There's, you know, why do magic? Why do music? That sense of personal accomplishment. That's that first thing. Or just, you might say curiosity even begins before that. You're curious. Then you want to see if you can do it. And then you'd like to be recognized for what you accomplished. But then there's this third thing, and that is giving to other people. And that usually comes later. You know, the kid who learned how to do the, uh, you know, the four aces trick, he's not running out there and doing it for all the relatives gathered around at Thanksgiving because he wants to give them a, a, a fun experience or something. He mostly wants recognition at that point. But as you do this a lot, any kind of performing, eventually you see the effect that it has on the audience. You can, you can make people have a good time. You know, in magic, you can give them a little fun. You can present mystery. You know, you can baffle them. You can just entertain them with little gags and jokes and surprises and things like that. Or visually, it can be really, you know, impressive. Let's say a stage magic show where there's flames and birds. and You know, you're giving them a visual experience. And in music, there's entertainment. There's You can inspire someone. You can comfort someone you can motivate people you know to dance or whatever and you begin to realize that you have that power over the audience and it begins to feel good that you can do this for other people i used to do a poem and it was like a cowboy poem and i would recite this poem i did it at a lot of gigs I only did it at gigs where I really had the audience's attention and I would usually do it, you know, when a banjo, when the banjo player broke a string and there was that lull, I'd just step right up and launch into my routine and do this poem. And I, I worked on this poem a long time and tried to continually perfect it and perfect it because there were two points in the poem where you'd get a laugh and 
the first laugh was never as strong as the final, the real, the secondary punchline. And I would work on that. And I knew when it was coming. And it was fun to see the audience react exactly as I predicted. It didn't always happen. Sometimes I blew it. Sometimes a waiter dropped a tray of glasses, you know, five seconds before that punchline, and it just threw me off. Or maybe, you know, there were people standing on the back talking, and I got distracted, and I didn't deliver the line as perfectly as I needed to to get that perfect laugh. Anyway, this sort of thing, you're giving to the audience. You're giving them this experience. But every time you're giving, you're also getting. Because you give it, and then you get the warm, fuzzy feeling that you gave them that. You know, So there's, there's an amount of selfishness in everything. Okay, let's move on here. The seventh thing that is similar between magic and music is that especially in performing, but it, it could be in learning too, but more so in performing. It tests, they both test your ability to think fast and solve problems on the fly. You know, if you've got an arrangement all worked out and you get to the third verse and the lead singer, he can't think of the words. What do you do? Everybody's looking at each other. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? And you have to solve that problem or look like an idiot. And, you know, there are constant little things like that, not always based on mistakes, but little adjustments on the fly that are made. And you, you learn that and you, you learn how to do that only by doing it. I could sit here and talk for an hour about how to do this and, you're never going to get it until you get out there and actually do it yourself. So problem solving. I want to tell you a little story. When I was in high school, I was probably about a, I don't know, 10th grade, 11th grade. Heavily into magic. That was my thing. And had, had not yet got the bluegrass bug. I entered the talent show at the high school. Signed up. I'm going to do my magic show for the talent show. I've been practicing. I've been you know, performing at little birthday parties and stuff. I've, I devised this show. I think we each had 10 minutes. Maybe it was less. It might've been five minutes. I don't know, but a limited time. And I decided I would do a pantomime thing where I just had a music track playing, which meant a record player playing into a microphone. And I would time my show. I would do five tricks, bing, bang, boom, one, two, three, four, five, in the five minutes that this song lasted and I rehearsed it and I had, you know, everything all worked out. Now I'm going to tell you that at the end, the final, the grand finale was as I did these other tricks, I was producing scarves, these silk scarves, you know, out of nowhere early in the show. And those were all being just sort of piled up, and laid on the back of a chair that was on the stage. The grand finale was I would pick up all these scarves that I had produced, and I would hold them up, and out of the scarves would fly a dove, a white dove. And the curtain would drop, just as the music hit the climax. That was how it was supposed to go. So I get all set up for this. I've got my doves. I had a couple of white doves that I bought at the magic shop, and they were my little pets. 
well, I only needed one for this one. So I have to prepare this dove. I've got to put him in this little spot. And if you can imagine about a 24 inch, very thin handkerchief and you've got your little tame dove and you put him right in the middle and you pick up all four corners and he's just sort of hanging in this little net in a little bag. And then that went on the back of the chair, just stuck on a needle. I had driven a needle into the back of the chair, and you just slipped all four corners on there, and that bird just hung there. And he's sort of in the dark, so he's very docile, and he's you know, very tame. And he just sits there until five minutes of the show have to go by. And I'm, every time I produce a scarf, I'm laying it over the back of that chair. I'm just laying them over there. And everybody can plainly see there's a chair and just a bunch of single silk handkerchiefs. And they're all being laid over there. And at the end, I walk over, pick up the whole bundle in one hand. And at that time, I would pick up the bird bundle with it and then produce the dove. That was my plan. Well, now I'm getting to this thinking fast. That's all set up. The curtain opens. I start the first trick. I start the second trick. I do the third trick, which was a thing with a candle flame. I was going to take a candle flame and carry it in my bare hands and stuff like that. Midpoint, I look over, and the bird has his head poked out. He has somehow wiggled his head out of that handkerchief, and he's looking around. And I see that. I'm very nervous because if he can see, he may climb out. And my grand finale may be this dove just walking across the stage in front of me. What do I do? What do I do? I look back. He's gone. The bird is gone. And it's time for that final thing. I mean, I have these silks. I'm reaching for them. And the bird is gone. I don't know if he's in there or not. You know, I'm doing a lot of fast thinking. Quite honestly, I didn't solve the problem. I didn't know what else to do other than just continue. And if he's in there, great. If he's not in there, the curtain's coming down anyway, and who cares? It's just the talent show. That was my logic. I didn't really come up with a fast solution. I should have had another bird like under my left armpit or something as a backup. But anyway, I reached over there and I lifted it and I could feel the weight of the bird. He had pulled his head back in and everything came out fine. And when he comes out, he, he wants to flap and he's flapping like crazy. And I'm holding his feet to keep him from flying off into the audience because he's just excited to be out there and the lights are in his face and stuff. And the crowd is cheering and clapping and the curtain is closing. And just as the curtain closes, I lose my grip on his feet and he flies up into the rafters. 30 minutes later, I got my bird down from the rafters. Anyway, getting on stage and performing, I don't care if you're doing magic or music, you're going to encounter those sorts of things and they are a test of your ability. Can you keep it together? Can you maintain your, you know, your image, your self-control, your maintain your cool under those sorts of pressure situations. I could tell you a dozen stories of similar crazy stuff that's happened playing music, but I'll, I'll save that for another time. Let me just race on through the rest of these similarities. One here that again, I keep saying one of these days I'm going to do an episode on the economics of bluegrass, but let me just mention that the business side of being a magician or being a musician are roughly the same in that 
it's almost impossible to make a living at it. It's, you know, going around chasing those, uh, you know, $50 gigs, $100 gig, that kind of thing. And at the top, it's a very small world. There are very few professional working musicians who make a good living. And the same goes for bluegrass musicians. And there are zillions of hobbyists. And then you also have that same problem of a lot of people are willing to do it for free. I think it's probably more common in bluegrass than in magic. I think there's a, there's a certain desire as soon as somebody performs, they, they, they kind of would like to be paid back. You know, they'll never make back all the money they've spent in that magic incorporated catalog, but it's very similar in that way. Uh, another thing about magic and music is there's a certain amount of illusion that takes place, obviously in magic, but I would say that that also is true in music. There's a bit of illusion going on. The audience doesn't like to think that there's an illusion happening. They would like to think when they look at that performer up there and they're hearing them play and they're playing so well that they are the most amazing, they, that they really are what, they, what the audience is per- perceiving. And I'm here to tell you that that's not always the case. And you know this. If you've ever played music, you know it's true. There are many examples of this you could you could take, but the the audience generally makes the assumption that if he can play that thing so well, he probably can play anything so well. I've seen performers who are amazing performers who really had just great show that couldn't sit down in a jam session and and even hang in there because maybe they didn't know how to improvise, you know. Uh, anyway, it's, it, there is a certain amount of illusion that goes on in music. And to deny that that is true will only harm you in your development as a music, as a musician. You have to also build your illusion, illusory um, side. You know, when you step on stage, you are creating a bit of illusion. So just remember that. Okay, last thing, and that is misdirection. And I hinted at it a minute ago, but in magic, misdirection is very important. When when I want you to look at the rabbit coming out of the hat, I also don't want you to look somewhere else. Like me reaching under the table, grabbing the tennis ball that I'm about to pull out of your ear. I don't want you to look there, so I misdirect you by having you look somewhere else. Misdirection, of course, is the opposite of direction. If I want you to look at the rabbit, I'm looking at the rabbit. Everything points to the rabbit, and you all look at the rabbit. And while everybody's looking at the rabbit, you know, I can do anything I want to with my other hand. That's the idea behind a lot of magical manipulation and illusion. But, you know, that same method of direction and misdirection can be utilized to great effect with a band. I think I said in a podcast before, you know, if the fiddle player is taking his break, look at him. Watch him. Because if you're watching him and the banjo player is watching him and the bass player is watching him, guess what will happen with the audience? They'll all watch him too. And they'll get a better performance. And it could be, from a misdirection principle, that at that instant, 
The banjo player needs to adjust his second string because it was a hair flat. And he turns slightly to the right, plunk, 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 brings it up, and is right back in. The audience never knows it because the band directed the audience to be looking at the fiddle player, which is appropriate to do during a fiddle solo. So this, this same sort of audience direction takes place in magic and music, and learning to do a little magic could perhaps teach you some of the principles that you could apply in performing music. And one more little thing I want to tell you about magic and music is that when I was in Cedar Hill, pretty soon the guys in Cedar Hill figured out that I did magic because I would be showing little tricks and stuff, you know, at practice. And, you know, the word got out that I could do a little magic. And we decided to uh, occasionally roll a magic trick into the show. And I wanted to tell you about one of them that uh, Fred, our bass player, and I used to do. And it, it just to give you the idea that you can take other skills and things that you're able to do and make them a little part of your show because you got to remember that if you, if you have a general audience out there, there's going to be a few people who just aren't that into bluegrass. My dad was a good example of that. He would occasionally come to our shows. He didn't really care about bluegrass music. He, he, the man couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, as they say. He didn't really care about that, but he liked the jokes and he would appreciate a yo-yo trick, you know? And so there, there's that person out there. And if you can just do a couple of little things in amongst your music and just assume that, you know, 5% of your audience would rather see a trick than hear a song, just, you know, don't eat up the whole show or you'll, you'll hack off the 95% who did come to hear music and they just want to hear that bluegrass music. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So don't don't overdo it, but a little of it here and there goes a long way, especially just sitting at the record table. Do coin tricks at the record table for little kids that come up. But you can combine these two things in what we did in Cedar Hill. There was this well-known trick among magic circles. You could order it out of any magic catalog. And we would do this thing, and it, it always went over well, but it took a lot of preparation. It took Fred about 15 minutes to rig up for it, and I'll just describe it to you. We call it the rope trick, and at at a certain point, Fred would step forward to sing a song, and I would play bass. And that was his one time that he came up to the audience. He sang Smoke That Cigarette, the old Merle Travis thing. And Fred, uh, because he did all these cigarette tricks, he would disappear cigarettes and stuff during the song in between each verse while the breaks were happening. He would vanish cigarettes and lit cigarettes and he did this little thing where he could like swallow it and make it disappear in his mouth and then make it pop back out. He had all these little tricks, sort of magic tricks that he did with cigarettes, but we started it with, um, this rope trick. He would walk out and I hadn't picked up the base yet. And I would say, Hey Fred, what's that hanging out of your leg? And he would say, Oh, I think that's some bluegrass. I stepped in some bluegrass and let me shake it off. And he would shake his foot you know, that would just get a little mild chuckle, you know, self-deprecating humor, comparing bluegrass to manure. And I'd say, no, no, there's like a, you got, you got a rope hanging out of your pant leg. And sure enough, there was about 18 inches of white clothesline dangling out his, the cuff of his pants. 
And, of course, he'd hold his leg up, and when he shook his leg, you'd see that rope dangle there. And I'd say, here, let me get that for you. And I'd reach down, and I'd start pulling that rope. And I'd pull, you know, yard after yard after yard, and it's just piling up, and I pull out about 30 feet of rope out of his leg while he's... And then, as I kind of get to the end, it's tight. His That's coming out of his left pant leg. And then his right arm would kind of bunch up at his shoulder and say, what's the matter? He said, I think it's stuck. And he'd reach into his right sleeve, and there's the rope dangling out, hanging out. So I would switch sides, go to the other side, and start pulling the rope back through out his right sleeve. So the rope is going up his left pant leg and out his right sleeve. And as I pull it out, you can see it going in. And I pull it and pull it and pull it and pull it and pull it. And so now you've seen both ends of the rope. And it gets stuck again. What in the world? And his left arm bunches up and pulls his sleeve back, his left sleeve. And there's that end of the rope tied around his left wrist. Now, this is impossible. You just saw the end of the rope go up his pant leg. And now it's hanging out his left wrist. So he's got the bulk of the rope sticking out his right sleeve and now it appears to be out his left sleeve and I switch sides again untie it and start pulling it and sure enough I'm pulling it out his left sleeve he's just got his arms spread out like a scarecrow I'm pulling the rope out the left sleeve and you're seeing it go up into the right sleeve this is clearly the same piece of rope how did it get up his leg and down his sleeve so people are starting to watch this and it gets stuck again stuck 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 Finally, I just give it one big pull, and out comes a big old pair of red and white striped underwear. Big, giant, mama-jama boxer shorts. Boing! Pulls out. Gets a big laugh. Ha, ha, ha. And we go into the song. That little thing took, you know, 30 seconds to do. It entertained the kids and old, you know, the audience. It wasn't bluegrass music, but it was entertainment. And those sorts of things, don't be ashamed to pull a trick like that once in a while for entertainment purposes if it moves your show ahead. you know. And seriously, doing things like that got us a lot of gigs over the years. We also played some pretty good music. Okay, that is enough for this podcast. This has been a fun year to start this podcast. I didn't know where it would go, and here I am still doing it. It's still fun, and I hope it's still fun for you. And I would just ask everyone who is listening that if you know someone else who might gain a little something from these podcasts or might enjoy them, just tell them about it. You know, write it on a little piece of paper and say, hey, check out this thing I've been listening to, grassdockradio.com. Hand it to them. Share it on Facebook. You know, these things don't cost anything. But as I've stated before, I don't have a budget for advertising. I I do appreciate the support that I get from the people who have become a Grass Talk Radio supporter. And when when somebody does that, they go to my store and they say, I want to be a Grass Talk Radio supporter. And they give me five bucks or ten bucks or twenty bucks. That means a lot to me. Because if that didn't happen, you know, I I can only go so far. It's like, you know, digging a hole and just throwing money in it or setting fire to money. Because if it doesn't bring back something, 
we cannot continue to do this. You know what I'm saying? And it's very simple if just, you know, think about it. We could double the size of the audience and double the number of people who are potentially getting into bluegrass simply by each one of you telling one other person about the show. So if you do that, I really appreciate it. And I will talk to you next year. <laughs>